Welcome to RUF. Um, I say this pretty much every week, and I'll say it as we start off another semester. Um, we want RUF to be a safe place uh, for the convinced and the unconvinced alike, meaning uh, wherever you are on the journey, whether you are um, a seasoned believer, whether you're a seasoned skeptic, uh, we want RUF to be a safe place for you to come and examine uh, the truth claims of Christianity. And we do that by opening God's Word. And this semester, we're going to be in Ephesians, uh, maybe my favorite book of the Bible, uh, just a rich, rich book. And we're going to we're going to start out, I'm going to read the first 13 verses of Ephesians. Um, we're, not, we're going to dive into the meat of, of those verses next week. Uh, so tomorrow, tonight's a little bit more of an in- introduction. So uh, just hold your breath. Let's read together God's Word. First 14 verses, not 13. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. What is, what is the last thing that you really got excited about? You know, we're coming back from Christmas, so maybe it was something you got, about, you got for Christmas. Um, maybe it was a grade you got in your finals when you thought you weren't going to do well. I don't know. Um, maybe it was the Breaking Bad finale or the cliffhanger with Walking Dead. I don't know. Um, but what was the last thing that you really got excited about? Um, and have you noticed... Have you noticed that no matter how excited you are about something, no matter how something, how awesome something is in and of itself or how awesome an experience is in and of itself, have you ever noticed that that thing is not quite complete until you tell somebody about it? Right? Have you ever noticed how those things which excite you the most, which move you the most, they immediately, usually move you to immediately want to share those things? And it's like if you don't get to share that thing, it's not uh, complete. Nothing fits the bill uh, of this for me more than the three times that Carrie and I were expecting. We have three children. Um, and 
the general rule when you find out you're pregnant is you're supposed to wait like eight to ten weeks before you go to the doctor, uh, before you tell people because you want to go to the doctor and make sure everything's okay and the baby's healthy and uh, that mommy's healthy and and all that stuff. Um, And I I remember that first visit uh, with our first child. There's nothing like hearing that heartbeat. I mean, it melts you. I mean, it's, it's life. I mean, you're hearing life, and it's life that you made, and it's just weird, and it's inside your wife, and it's like there's a, something growing. It's weird. It's a heartbeat, and it melts you, and you're, it takes your breath away. But as awesome as that moment was, it's what it led to that was the better part, that we finally got to tell people, right? We were so excited. We've been holding this thing in for weeks. And we finally got to tell people that we were expecting. It's not real almost until you tell somebody about it. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. And I tried to kind of maybe convey this in the way that I read uh, these opening verses. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that Paul is excited. The Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, he's excited about something. Uh, Actually, verses 3 through 14 in the original language is one long run-on sentence. One long sentence. Paul just gives this big burst of theology. He's excited. He even uses the P word twice, right? Well, uh, we'll talk more about that next week. Um, he's excited about something. And he can't help but let it out. Okay? So in sum, this is what he's excited about. He's excited about what God has done for us in Jesus. That's what he's excited about. He's excited about what God has done for us in Christ. He's telling his readers, he's telling us that there's something so radical that it completely changes and transforms who you are. That's the catch tonight. It completely transforms who you are. That's where I want to pause tonight and just think about this question tonight. Who are you? Who are you? And in light of what Paul says, who are we in Christ? Those are the two points tonight. Who are you and who are we in Christ? Those are my two points tonight. And the first one, I just want to think about this kind of a question of identity here. Who are you? And as Mark Driscoll puts it, Mark Driscoll had a book um, and he used Ephesians as, um, as, the, as the topic of his book. And the title of that book was, Who Do You Think You Are? So who are you or who do you think that you are? I want to read you um, this little excerpt. A guy named Rick Riley, he now is on ESPN, but he used to be, um, he used to write the last article in, the, in every Sports Illustrated. The last page would always be a Rick, Rick Riley um, column. And this is a column that he wrote one time at the end of Sports Illustrated. I want you to listen to this. On the same day in the same town, two sports writers, two friends of mine killed themselves. One was my old hoops buddy, Mike Penner, who started at the L.A. Times the same year that I did. The other was Christine Daniels, a blonde who bubbled from heels to highlights. Mike was a little quiet, a little reclusive, a lot brilliant. He preferred staying home, making mixtapes, and writing sentences that were chunks of perfection. Christine was the opposite. She was a gregarious, 100-mile-per-hour talker, always looking to cover an event to be seen. The fun meter pegged, the curls bouncing. She was flirty, always lightly grabbing your arm when she talked, covering her mouth when she laughed, which seemed like all the time. But you see what's heartbreaking is that they were the same person. Many years ago, there was an article in a Chicago paper 
And the title of it was The Irony of Being Human. Um, and it, the irony of being human, the author took these two stories that happened at a hotel in Chicago to make his point. Uh, the first story was this woman who had left her husband, uh, left her family uh, for another man. And she found herself at this hotel that night and her new lover had left her to go back to his family. And so she found herself, she'd lost her husband, she'd lost her children, and now she'd lost her lover. And she decided to end her own life. And she left a note on the bedside table that said this, Don't cry for me. I'm not even human anymore. But the author goes on to say that at that same night, in the same hotel, there was actually um, a humanistic self-empowerment conference going on in the same hotel. And that same night, the keynote speaker ended the night by leading the audience in a chant. And the chant went like this, I am God. I am God. I am God. And so the author makes the point, this is his conclusion. He says, the irony of being human is that people in the same time and the same place can have such contradictory views of themselves. Right? Who are you? More than that, who do you think you are? The Bible, uh, it has a lot to say about that. It has a lot to say about where we come from, whose image we were made in, what's our purpose, uh, what's our end, uh, what's our goal. But to su- suffice it to say tonight, I think we can all agree that identity is one of the fundamental aspects of your existence, right? Your identity, who you are, is one of the fundamental aspects of your life. Uh, to put it negatively, think about this. There's no crisis cr- quite like an identity crisis. Right? Usually we take the biggest, the biggest problems in somebody's life and we say, that person's having an identity crisis. They don't even know who they are. I, what comes to mind for me here is uh, sports stories. Usually when sports teams are doing really poorly, inevitably you get one of the leaders on that team. And what does he say? He says, we just haven't found our identity yet. We've got to go find our identity and then everything will be okay. Um, that diagnosis is all around us. Maybe many of you seniors, especially, you're still trying to figure out what's ahead of you, where you're going to go. You're like months away from graduating. Um, you really want to know. And maybe you've heard this line of reasoning, you know, well, what do you want to do? Well, I just don't know. And what's the answer? Well, you know what you should do? You should go find yourself. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Go find out. Go find yourself. If you think about it, in large part, how we see ourselves is our identity. That's usually how we build our identity is how we see ourselves. Um, there's a popular, there's popular report that comes out every year, uh, and it measures how American students measure up to students from around the world, right? And, and one trend that we've seen over the last how, how many ever years is that American students have steadily dropped from the top echelons of students in like mathematics, um, engineering, science, you know, things that are pretty important. Um, we, you know, American students have kind of declined in a lot of those categories. But there's one category... That's been interesting to see. American students are consistently at the top. You want to know what it is? Self-esteem. In other words, when an American student takes a test, they may not be doing as well on that test as other students around the world, but they feel better about how they did (laughs) than the rest of the students around the world. But here's the thing with that. 
Okay, so self-esteem is high. There's another study in conjunction with that that I think is interesting. And I mentioned this a year ago um, in our city, our, our series in, in the Gospel of John. Uh, and New York Times reported that there, there was a research uh, study that came out in 2011 that said that the emotional health of college freshmen is at an all-time low. The emotional health of college freshmen is at the lowest level in the 25 years of their surveying. And at the same time, stress levels were at all-time highs. So I don't want to do much analysis of studies tonight, but I think we can agree that at the least there's a disconnect somewhere in there, right? We're feeling good about ourselves, but our emotions are crashing. Um, You know, the American students are generally having a positive view of themselves, but their emotional health at all time lows. So how students see themselves is not lining up with how they live and actually feel about themselves. There's a disconnect in there somewhere. And this is what I want to suggest to you. The disconnect has to do with identity. There's a crisis of identity going on. Um, People don't know who they are. And they're searching for anything to give them an answer. People don't know who they are. And may I also suggest to you that I think something's gotten turned upside down when it comes to identity, when it comes to answering the question for ourselves, who are we? Who do you think you are? Um, Something has got reversed, and this is what it is. I think what has gotten reversed in our culture is that our identity has become, you are what you do. That's why you are so stressed out, because you look at these four years of college and you say, if I don't reach this, I am done. You view yourself as you are what you do. And so if you don't do well, well, you're a failure, right? But I want to suggest to you that's not how identity works. And that's what, this is something we're going to be unfolding the rest of this semester, okay? But the thing is, is that you aren't... The, the lie is that you are what you do. But I would suggest to you that identity actually says you do what you are. You do what you are. In other words, you are not what you do. In other words, your identity is the foundation for how you live. Your identity is the foundation for how you feel about yourself, for how you see yourself. So how you, how you live, how you see yourself, how you feel about yourself, that does not determine your identity. Your identity determines those things. Okay? So that, hopefully that makes the question even more important for you. Who are you? Who do you think you are? What answers that for your life? I think January is a perfect example of this, of how we usually answer that question. Uh, just come to the gym with me in the time I'm, I usually go. There's about five times as many people there right now as there usually is. And I would invite you then to come back with me in a month. And I guarantee you, you divide that group by five and it'll probably be back down to that small number. Right? We get these New Year's resolutions. Which I'm really going to change myself this year. Right? Think about this. How many times have you completely destroyed yourself trying to change your behavior in order to change who you are? Think about that. How many times in your life have you utterly just run yourself through a wall trying to change your behavior to change who you are? The reason that's a wall that you keep running into is because you cannot do it. You cannot change who you are by what you do. Now, does that mean what you do is not important? No. Come back. We'll keep unfolding this this semester. How many times have you destroyed yourself in an attempt to change who you are by changing your behavior? It's another question. 
For some of you, this may apply. Some of you, it may not. But why do you find yourself being a completely different person at home than who you are at school? Why do you find yourself being a completely different person with people you went to high school with compared to who you make friends with here at college? Guys, and this is going to be girls too, actually. Um, why do you think it is that the fun, real you only comes out when you're drinking? Girls, this one is for, for girls. Maybe it could be for guys, but girls. Why is it that you only feel beautiful when you fit into a certain dress or that certain pair of jeans? The question is, who are you? But more than that, the question is, how do you answer that question? With what are you answering that question? Paul, the Apostle Paul here, is completely jazzed up about something. And this is what I want to suggest to you that he's so excited about. I want to suggest to you that he's excited about who these people are. And he's excited more than that about who these people are. Key word repeated over and over again in Christ. He's excited about who these people are in Christ. So that's what I want to end with tonight is who, who are we in Christ? This is what Paul's excited about. So who are we in Christ? If I'm in Christ, who am I? Well, the first thing that sticks out there, we're just kind of look at these first, first two verses, really. He says to the saints who are in Ephesus. Okay. So who are we in Christ? Well, the Paul says, Paul says the first thing um, is to the saints that in Christ, we are saints. Now, I don't know what your view of saints is, but Paul is telling everyone at the church at Ephesus that they're saints. Okay, the New Testament over and over again refers to us as saints, as holy, as righteous. But, you know, there's an irony to being Christian too. We talked about the irony of being human. There's an irony to being Christian too, right? You can go, you can be in a group of Christians and there can be those that like think they're the scum of the earth, right? They're always self-deprecating. It always seems like this false humility, um, always beating themselves down. And they view like the sum all be all of being a Christian is that God had pity on me. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have Christians that are holy rollers, right? They think that they are God's chosen. Not only are they God's chosen, but they're God's choice people. They're the ones that get it right. And the fact about both of them is that they're both miserable to be around. We all know this. Let's not lie. Um, but here's the thing. Don't you think probably both of those existed at Ephesus? But Paul makes this blanket statement. And he calls them saints. It literally means holy ones. It literally means those who are set apart, those who are sanctified or being sanctified, those who are made holy. First Corinthians, he starts the letter the same way. He says, to the, the, the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So those who are holy, called to be holy. Okay, they're set apart. But set apart for what? A saint is one who's been set apart. For what? But maybe a better question is for whom? Listen how Paul puts it in Titus, uh, Titus 2.14. He says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So who is a saint? Well, there in verse 1, he says, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, those who believe in Jesus, those are the saints. And taking Titus into account, it's someone who Jesus has bought with his own blood and who Jesus has set apart for himself. In other words, if you're a Christian, 
you're a saint. That's what Paul's saying. If you believe, if God died for you, if Jesus died for you, um, you are a saint. In other words, it's not a result of something wonderful you've done. And nothing horrible you've done can ever take it away. Because it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's solely about who he is and what he's done. That's why they're saints. It's all about who he is and what he's done. But here's the second thing. You look, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. So real people, real, ordinary, everyday life people, just like us. Ephesus was the center of commerce. Uh, It was a bustling city. Um, it was one of, I mean, it was one of the prime cities, if not one of, if not, it was the prime city of Asia Minor, right? Um, like a New York City, a hub for everything. All roads kind of went through Ephesus. Um, so there were normal people there. If there are normal people there, people there, what do we also know that they probably were? It means we know that they were probably also sinners. So Paul calls them saints, but we know that they're ordinary people, so we know they're still sinners. Go back to the, the, the Corinthians. He calls the people Corinthian, in the Corinthian church, uh, in the church at Corinth, saints. You know what he wrote to the church at Corinth about? This is some things he wrote to the church at Corinth, Corinth about. They had formed factions. Uh, some followed Paul, some followed Peter, some followed Apollos. Some were Presbyterian, some were Baptists, some were Catholic, you know, some, whatever. Um, sexual immorality. Uh, he talks about a man in, a church, in the church was sleeping with his father's wife, and he says that the pagans don't even tolerate that kind of behavior. Uh, he writes them about filing lawsuits against each other. They're suing one another, okay? Uh, and they were getting drunk when they came together to do communion. So in other words, the church at Corinth had problems, okay? The church at Corinth did not have it all together. Yet the first thing that he says to them when he opens up his letter is he calls them saints, okay? The the saints at Corinth didn't have it all together, so neither did the Ephesians. Yet we're told every believer is a saint. So God's saints are average people who love Jesus and who don't have it all together. That's a saint. Okay, so he says the saints, but they're also in Ephesus. So how can they be saints and sinners? How can we be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, yet be here going to school and, you know, struggling with everything a student struggles with my boring, ordinary life? It's an issue of identity. It's an issue of identity. Okay, Um, the Bible overwhelmingly calls us saints, holy and righteous, but it's also very straightforward that we do not have it all together and we will not get it all together in this life. Okay, but here's the thing. You are if you are in Christ, you are no longer sinner, meaning it is no longer your identity. If you're in Christ, your identity is saint because you're in Christ. It's an identity issue. But here's the big one, and this is what I want to end with. So we're saints. We still struggle with sin. But finally, who are we in Christ? When you're in Christ, you're his. Get that. When you're in Christ, you're his. You belong to him. Okay, let me read Titus 2.14 again. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To be in Christ is to be his. Meaning to be a Christian 
To be in Christ, it means that Christ is the sum total definition of who you are. It means that you're defined by who he is and what he's done. It means you're defined by what he is doing in your life right now. It means you're defined by what he is going to do in you and through you. You're defined. Your identity is in Christ. Mark Driscoll, quote that's in your handout there. He says, being in Christ is vital for every believer to experience and understand because being in Christ is the one thing that changes everything. Get that. Being in Christ is the one thing that changes everything. But here's the thing. It also means this. Either you are in Christ or your identity is is in a false savior. The Bible calls those idols, right? Either, there's only two choices. Either your identity is in Christ or your identity is in a false savior, a false idol. It's in something that cannot save. It's in something that cannot provide. It is in something that cannot bear the weight of your soul and it will end up crushing you. Think about this. What you do flows from who you are. If you are in Christ, there's great comfort in that. What you do flows from who you are. That's actually the structure of Ephesians. As you'll see this semester, the first three chapters, Paul just can't stop going on and on and on about what God has done for us in Christ. So he's trying to hammer home to the Ephesians, this is who you are because of what God has done. In the next three chapters, four through six, he moves on from that and says, because of who you are, this is what you should do. See, we always end up flipping that, don't we? See, the gospel has you are, therefore you do. Religion comes and says you need to do so you can be. God knows that changing your behavior doesn't change who you are. That's why he changes who you are by what he's done in Christ. Meaning, the weight of your identity, think about this, the weight of your identity, the weight of your purpose in life, the weight of your worthiness or your value, the weight of your existence itself does not hinge on how well you are doing. It does not hinge, if you are in Christ, on how well you are doing. So many of you, Live every day in reaction to the fear that as soon as you mess up, it's over for you. That you're just a failure. And these things scream at you every day. And those are the things that are motivating you. What you do flows from who you are. There's some of you, for those of you, that some of you are stuck in things that bring you nothing but shame and guilt. And you know these things will bring you nothing but shame and guilt. Yet you cannot help, it seems like daily, those things bringing you shame and guilt. There's an invitation here for you. There's an invitation for you to know Christ, to come to Christ, to be in Christ. Because there and only there, you will find freedom and liberation of being defined by Him. Not by being defined by your shame and guilt. I'm going to end with this. 
is a touching viral video that I saw this week. I think it was on BuzzFeed. Uh, it was a production of Peter Pan in Glasgow, Scotland. I found this on Facebook, so maybe many of you have watched it. Um, talk about waterworks. Um, I'll tell you. Um, production of Peter Pan in Glasgow, Scotland. And the last scene of the play, the whole cast is on stage, and Peter Pan and Wendy are kind of doing their their big number, which just happened to be You Raise Me Up. I think that's in, like, everything now. Um, If you want to write a musical, just put You Raise Me Up in it, and you're good. Um, But they're doing their big number, and there's, like, a pause before they move on to finish it. And all of a sudden, Peter Pan breaks character, the actor. He breaks character, and he grabs a microphone, and he starts talking to the audience, and he tells them who he is. And then he looks across the stage at Wendy and he tells them who she is. And then he tells the audience that she is the love of his life in real life, right? Um, And everybody's just going crazy and he crosses the stage and he gets down on one knee and he asks her to marry him, right? And the cast is going crazy and you can hear the audience. Everybody's just like, oh my God, this is so good. Um, And I kind of had the same feeling as I watched it. Um... Here's a question. Do you ever feel like your life is just stuck in a script? That you're just stuck on stage and all you can do is repeat the lines that you've been fed. And you long so much just to be the real you. Everything in your life just seems like this glass menagerie that could crack and crumble at any minute. And you're just waiting for something extraordinary. You're waiting for something real to break through and touch you for real. Much like that moment broke through for that audience and for everybody who gets to watch the video. I hope you're starting to see why Paul is so excited because what Paul is saying is something has broken through and it's Jesus. It's what God has done for you in Jesus. And it's what you are when you believe in what God has done for you in Jesus. That is why Paul is so excited. That is why Paul cannot help but just explode in theology. Everybody has theology. Um, Praise of God, of who God is. He's saying that when I think of you, when I look at you, I remember what God has done. And it brings me nothing but joy. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's so beautiful that you're now sons and daughters of God because he's adopted you. It's so powerful that it was by his own son's blood and it's so powerful that it brings the dead to life. It's so wise, he says here, that it was a plan for the fullness of time. It's so grand that it was before the foundation of the world. It's so grand that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. I don't know how many that is, but Paul says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's so cosmic that he will unite all things in Christ. All things. And it's so sure. He says there in the last couple of verses. He sealed you with his own spirit. It's the question. Don't you think that is something worth getting excited about? Who are you? Who do you think you are? 
Are you not at least curious to know who you could be in Christ? That's the invitation tonight to you. That's the invitation that will be the whole semester. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to know who we are. And Father, more than that, we want to know who we are because of you. We want to know who you see us as. We want to know what you've done for us. We want to know that we belong to you. We want to know that you think we're beautiful. That you think we're worthy. Father, that you cherish us and that you treasure us. We want to know that. We long to know that tonight. Father, we pray that we would see Jesus and that in seeing him, we would see who we are in him because of who he is and because of what he's done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.